Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Trading has always been about having an information edge over your competitors. But digitization, technology in general, is making data more freely available in greater quantities than ever before. In response, trading organizations and the commodities world in general is pouring billions into data management and data analytics. Today, we're gonna try and unpick what exactly the data is, where it's coming from, how it can be used, and how that can give a lasting competitive advantage to organizations and individual traders, along with some of the challenges and pitfalls. Our guest is Alex Chandy. Alex has been in and around the commodity markets for a number of years and is the co-founder of 2DA, a software startup focused on data analytics in the commodities world. Alex is also the co-host of the Margin Call podcast on the Digital Wildcatters Network, a podcast primarily focused on oil trading. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Paul. So I said there in the intro that um, data monetization, um, this idea that data is really the ultimate asset for a commodity trading group, this kind of notion of barrels to bytes that's been floated around, we're, we're seeing commodity trading groups put huge amount of resources and energy into their data management and data digestion for a commercial advantage. So the, the, the phrases and the words are used a lot. Can you, before we sort of dig into some of the, the hows and whys, can you just help orientate, give us an example of how and why commodity traders are thinking about monetizing data and, and why it's becoming such a, an important topic in this industry? Yeah, I, I think it's a great place to start. I think primarily, you know, you start off with the with the hypothesis that you st- that you stated in in trading, uh, no matter you know commodities, financial equities, interest rates, whatever. Uh, the information, you know, uh, edge has been the difference between a successful trader and and one that isn't. Uh, and in the past, uh, information edge was achieved through tremendous. Uh, investment and cost in getting access to data that other folks didn't have access to, uh, and and you, what you sort of said is you know what's happened over the last you know at least ten years and what's accelerated over the last five is the accessibility to data um, and the availability of data has just absolutely exploded. It's just available, for lack of a better word, in the ether. Um, and now it's it's not there is no exclusivity to access to data. It's really around what can you do with the data uh, since it is now available and sometimes at you know zero marginal cost, meaning to be able to pick up data that has value uh, in your trading operations. Um, it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg in 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 terms of capital investment and technology. So uh, the way I like to look at it from a data perspective is um, there's internal data, so your own data, and the ability to be able to drive insight out of that. And then there's external data. And really, when we talk about external data, I really like this, the, 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 the moniker. It's data from the edge, uh, meaning it is the data that's being you know, generated by either a physical asset uh, sitting in the ground somewhere, or it's data that's being generated uh, from customers, ultimately uh, the end user uh, that gives you insight into demand, which has always been the hardest problem to solve, or gives you some predictive ability into disruption of supply or demand or capacity availability. 
uh, that's the external part of, of, of data. And both of them have challenges associated um, not from a sheer size of data that's available, uh, easily available, but then what do you do and, and how, do you, how do you monetize that data? Uh, I think it's still a challenge. So you've got that monetization is also internal and external, right? There's you just simply using data to boost revenue or lower costs within your current organization. There's also then taking that learning um, and applying it to markets external to you and, and you know, algorithmic trading, whatever that might be. Can you give us a couple of examples, one of you know, where a firm can use data to improve their financial performance internally, and then perhaps some examples about how firms can then start applying that data to make money, you know, from other markets. Yeah, um, uh, plenty of examples uh, internally. Uh, in fact, we've 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 studied that quite extensively, um, uh, and I think uh, our findings are corroborated uh, uh, through other you know, sort of independent sources. Generally, uh, it, I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an extreme uh, estimation to say that about four-fifths of the data that's available, about 80% of the data that's generated internally that's available to a trading company is not used. Uh, it's only about 20% of the data that's generated that's actually used for decision-making. Uh, and there are plenty of reasons around that. One, you know, trading is, as everyone knows, it's a very time-poor type of activity. You are dealing with er things day in, day out, and the luxury to be able to consume the vast amounts of data that are coming in uh, is really not there. Uh, perfect example of that, just take shipping, for example. Uh, the amount of data... Uh, that in the past used to be generated through fax and telex, or, you know, notice of readiness, discharging, uh, lake hands, uh, ship positioning, arrival times, all of that was brought in in paper format, and it would wind up being archived, if at all, in a, you know, a, a three-ring binder and then put somewhere else. Today, all that comes in electronically, and we've heard, you know, uh, marine schedulers at a trading house in London will have 6,000 unopened emails uh, with this information. And it's just updated information on a particular vessel or parcel or shipment. That's the data that, you know, can be absolutely mined in order to give you context on the operation on a marine vessel or the operation of a marine vessel in context to a specific port at a specific time and the ability to now take that and associate it with external edge data like fog, or weather, or delays, or, you know, port strikes. Um, and essentially what that does is when you talked about, you know, reducing cost, think of the implications for demurrage uh, and the ability to better predict my cost accruals uh, if I'm using marine as a shipment um, uh, modality uh, on, 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 a, on a consistent basis in, in, a, in, a, in a trading situation uh, and being able to better forecast my margin on, on a particular trade uh, by using all this data rather than, you know, just using a bland cost estimate for demarage or shipping rates, uh, you, know, you know, globally for every ship that I'm using everywhere in the world. That's a perfect example. And there's the revenues piece as well, right? You've got this idea that, okay, so you can predict costs better, but if you were able to get all of that information for the entire fleet, talk about spot trading LNG, for example, and I'm sure this goes on, you can optimize that fleet, I imagine, perhaps more effectively 
without biases, without some of the human error that can come in and, and make decisions about where which cargo should go where, perhaps more effectively, perhaps. Right. And and what is the the, the supply demand or the, the, the supply capacity if there's slack in the system, there are vessels coming available if they're not? Um, and, and, you know, there, there are a ton of services out there that will provide that raw data to you. It's, it's up, up to you as the trading firm to put that in the context of your operations, right? So that's, that's an example of internal data. And that's just one example we can talk about. You know, um, you know, we're talking about marine data. You can talk about, you know, inland data, like, you know, how often does a terminal run out of, of inventory? How quickly do we do we turn the uh, the inventory if we're marketing fuel out of a out of a uh, a tank farm, uh, or if I'm if I'm if I'm looking at local rack prices, if I'm a fuel buyer, you know you know how many times did I actually get filled on the lowest rack uh, offer that was out there? So there's a lot of that a lot of that repetitive data that you can you can start archiving and you can do pretty sophisticated time series analysis on it down to a location level. We're going to come on to the challenges of both what data, and then in particular how to how to digest it or analyze it. The 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 external example that you gave me, I thought was fascinating. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? The, the COVID example. External data is again. It's I think it's 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 not as well um, uh, used as it could be, but the ability to be able to. Uh, to see disruptions or to see waves coming across uh, across the uh, the commodity markets uh, because these are such interrelated and highly connected markets it's just one big network so a perfect example is covid you know if you were paying attention on twitter you would have known as early as middle december that this respiratory virus that had there was an outbreak in 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 hubei province was way more serious than what the media or anyone was, um, you know, the the general news services uh, were were reporting it to be. Most people weren't really paying attention to it, but the preponderance of evidence that was coming out in social media, if you're talking about Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, uh, and this was from, you know, a, a variety of sources, but not a lot of them, but just showing the the, the level of the lockdown, the 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 the, the absolute sort of um, uh, uh, seriousness, which uh, which the Chinese authorities were taking, this would have been an indication that this was not something normal. And then there were Twitter feeds, uh, and it's it's again, it's it's sort of there isn't one Twitter feed. It's almost you have to piece the information together. But the preponderance of evidence as we got closer into January into early February was just more and more reinforcing. So for commodity traders that had a gut feeling that this was. Uh, absolutely a, a, a seminal event, the the associated confirming data, the triangulation that you got out of so, uh, social media feeds would have just reinforced it and given you more confidence to set your positions accordingly, which a certain number of hedge funds did and did very successfully, whereas a lot of people in the commodity world got absolutely caught flat-footed and you saw a lot of you know sort of uh, financial turmoil and inventory write-downs and emergency lines of credits and working capital uh, that happened as a result it's a perfect example of that and it, it, it continues today and and this is a perfect example of data that's available for zero marginal cost all you need is a Twitter account and to be following certain um, certain Twitter feeds and then the ability to 
pull that through, you know, very, very uh, cheap and available social listening uh, software. Yeah. But then, and we're going to come on to this, it's having the data scientists or the, you know, the, the fixed costs to be able to digest it, right? And that that's where there is a lot of cost. And there's also a lot of cost in in getting the cultural piece in place for management to be able to, or traders or whoever it is, to actually be able to think about and ask these these questions and then have decisions made. But we'll come on to that. So before we come on to using the data, can you just give us a quick overview of, I think we've got a nice categorization there of internal data generated by your company or activities, this external data that you can buy or sort of basically coming from your customers, from your, your environment. Can you just give us a little bit of, because obviously not all data is of equal value. Um, and, you know, and it's, and it's also changing, you know, in, in the number of planes at any given point. Can you just help us understand a bit more about what we mean by data? Yeah. And that, that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? Especially when you talk about in, in the trading environment where, you know, that's the part of if, if, and, and, you know, I'm not going to make a distinction if, if you're a big asset heavy, like refiner or oil company to your wholesaler or your pure trading company that's taking positions, uh, based on, you know, sort of arbitrage. The point is, at that point, you are facing the market, and the market is just this emergent system, right? No one can rightly predict it, but we can maybe see um, uh, trends or, you know, the, the real goal here is to, to to find inflection points, not just at a macro level, but at a micro at a micro level. So making that distinction. Now, the burden is there's, you know, when you talk about pulling data from the edge and, and all these sources, of data. There's a ton of it. And, and really this is the process of curation is not, it's one understanding, you know, all data is not equally weighted as far as value. But the part that's really interesting is, is, is the context. There is some data that can be incredibly valuable for a short period of time. Perfect example is Twitter feeds for, you know, global pandemics and viruses. You know, that that those data feeds incredibly uh, uh, valuable December, January, February of, of last year. The trick there is to figure out, you know, is, is when does that data become valuable? It doesn't relieve you of the burden of collecting that data, but you don't have to analyze it every single day you can uh, are you, you need sort of the automation and the technology to alert you to certain things uh and and the things are you know really it boils down to the questions that you want to be answered right that's the question that you're asking the data repeatedly uh is this happening uh is there a sign of this happening uh because if i can answer that question that means an immediate edge to me in my day-to-day trading operations, you know, whether it's regional or, or, or location-based or even uh, uh, global on a macro perspective. So, so that data, it's the planes is right. It's not just, you know, some data is valuable all the time. Some data is valuable some of the time, but when it is, it is such an outlier in the terms of value that it makes a definitive difference. So I'll, you know, Paul, I just sort of make this other classification for internal and external data. The way I like to look at it is there's volumetric data. So what volumes do I have, inventories, et cetera? Then there's economic data, prices, differentials, basis, 
you know, uh, uh, futures OTC. Uh, both those data, those sets of data have constant value, uh, uh, and they're 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 very very valuable over time. And then I have environmental data, and this is where my data from the edge is: the weather, you know, uh, traffic patterns, uh, disruption, riots, fires, you know, uh, uh, outages to power plants, pipelines, refineries. Right? Um, I still have the burden of collecting that data, but it's not going to be valuable until it is. And when it is, it's massively valuable. Hmm. So, and I think that's a, it's a fascinating categorization. So we've got these data sources. Um, we've got this idea that whilst you might be monitoring lots and lots of, of data at any given point, you might be only asking questions of some of it, um, depending on the conditions. It, it seems that the it is actually a hugely challenging operation to orientate a business towards this kind of thinking, as, as far as I understand. Because you've got, uh, just go move on to analysis. The, the biggest first thing is is really what questions you're trying to ask at the data, because there's also the danger that you're getting, if you're asking incorrect questions, you're getting poor, poor outcomes, um, or you're asking too many questions and you're, you've got sort of paralysis by analysis to, 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 to make the, uh, the, the, use the idiom. Um, and, and can you, I guess, give us some help on, on understanding that and then walk us through some of the terminology because not, you know, whilst all things might be algorithms, not all of them are suitable for automating or not all decisions are suitable for automation. Um, and we're looking at this from a micro macro level. Help us navigate that. Yeah. So um, let me, let's take the, the last part because it sets the frame of references. The more, you know, the more zoomed in you are uh, down to a, you know, let's say for lack of a better word, a location level, you're looking at like the Houston Ship Channel or you're looking at Rotterdam. Um, uh, and then you're looking at a defined time frame. Uh, time frame can be zoomed in. So when you talk about algorithmic trading, you're looking down to your know, millisecond execution and running trading strategies at, at that level. Um, so you can zoom in to from a time perspective, from a location perspective, um, to a very, very granular level. Those that uh, when you're at that level, algorithms become a lot easier to to run and execute because uh, you can define a rule set and the ability for an external shock, something else that happens that will throw that rule set off and cause your algorithm to be wrong is incredibly limited. As you zoom out, you know, both from a time perspective, I'm looking at day on day or week on week or month on month, or I'm looking at US, US Gulf Coast versus Northwest Europe, or I'm just looking at global. The more macro you get, you, you require more human judgments because involved in decision making because there's more things that can happen that can, you know, affect the rule set. Uh, that you're trying to automate or you're trying to uh, to run to give you, you know, tripwire, canary in a coal mine type advanced warning of things that are happening. So you can't 100% automate that because you need some human judgment associated to say, hey, can I triangulate this and and then make a decision off of it because it's at that large scale. So you have that sort of play in where you are from uh, what level you're trying to um, to analyze the data in uh, how extraordinary, right? I, I think back to some of my courses I've taken in my career. You know, for example, just in marketing, right? The 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 use of the conjoint analysis to be able to work out which of the the two or three attributes are are really 
significant terminology for uh, for customer liking. If you can present a trader or, or or leadership that incredibly rich, incredibly you know exponentially richer information and the insights it's providing, the five or six key significant factors they need to think about, you you should be able to dramatically move trading from kind of the part gut feel part terror you know to, <laughs> to, to, to i guess a more you know to, and, and that's i assume what the plan is right is your your are there are there these two or three things that you've got a proprietary um either you you yourself have that data is proprietary or your algorithm or your analysis is the proprietary piece possibly both that really is going to change decision making with an organization and and that's where you know why it's so relevant to the commodity trading market Yes. And, and I think part of it is, and, and this is the hard work that's required and you're not going to be able to, to, to reap the, the rewards without this hard work. Um, there's no way around it is the fact that actually when you, when you zoom out to a macro level, you know, what you're essentially doing is taking localized insight and activity and sort of extrapolating that out to a regional and, and uh, to a regional view and then to a, a much bigger macro view. Uh, so we have the saying, uh, in, in, in our office, like, why would it, why should a crude trader in, in, in sitting in Stanford, Connecticut care about the, the, the local rack price of gasoline, uh, in Angleton, Texas? Well, the reason, because the reason is it's a network, right? And you have, you know, sort of, sort of localized dynamics that, you know, as you add them up and aggregate them up, work backwards to, you know, a refinery stance that works backwards to, you know, how pipelines for crude are going to be, you know, which way they're going to shift from, from a, from a volume perspective. And that's essentially what traders do. You know, is they build these models that say, you know, what is my gross level supply demand balance going to look like for crude? And it's going to be driven by some demand. Well, the, the, the good news is you can build that with way more accuracy, uh, starting at the bottom and working up. The hard news is, you know, you need, you need to at least seed that exercise with expertise for folks who can define what the rule sets are and the boundary conditions are and what the constraints are in the system, which is a good trader, a good scheduler will be able to do that, uh, systemize that knowledge uh, in order to then let the data scientists loose on the data to say, hey, this is the question. If I could answer this question, it would make give me defined edge in this market, but you got to know the rule set under which you're going to answer that question. Then you let the data scientists go onto that problem. Not sort of what we saw very early on was folks were hiring a lot of data scientists and they were just gathering a bunch of data. And then literally it was like slot machines. It was like, go find me some insight, right? And people would come up with correlations and causation. And, and then you take that to a seasoned trader, you're like, this is rubbish. I can't use it or it doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Because because what it doesn't account for is is sort of the idiosyncrasies of that particular market, the behavior of the market, the constraints in that market. I think that's a fascinating point from a people standpoint is it, it is a deliberative and costly process. Otherwise, if you do this, you know, you're going to get bad data, as you say, if you're you know, not running many iterations, or whatever it is. But it, it's it's starting with the question. And, and that's coming from the seasoned commodity professionals. And we're going to come on to why perhaps this is unique in commodities compared to equities, because you have that physical underlying of the market. So you do need that physical expertise, those the commodity traders, the operators to say, here are the questions. And the good news is now they've got you've got 
potentially much much richer sources of data yes that you you know you can either pay for or you can find deploy and and, and this goes back to i mean enron days they were getting proprietary information you know using more uh, innovative ways um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there um the but you you, you and then you're bringing these teams together but it's not just sprinkle data scientists, right? Because that is a that a that's they're, they're obviously costly to hire. They're difficult to find, and they need to be you know need to be used correctly. But actually, it is I think to use your words um, previously it was you know this is a intricate and highly labor intensive process to really test find test all the data, build it all together, and actually come up with something usable. Right? It's not this isn't easy. Yeah, I think I think the key word that you said there is iterative. It is an iterative function. It is it is a search function. It is a it's a blend of of science and and a bit of art. If if I'd say experience was art, um, uh, where I know what the tolerances are in the system, where I have a good feel for it, but it's iterative and it, and it happens. You're going to have a lot of cycles spent that result in nothing, but that's okay uh, because because you're mining for information. And I think one of, and I think firms are getting really, really good at this. Is you can't treat it like your typical IT project with a budget and a milestone and you know a PMO office that says go find me uh, trading edge. It's literally it is it is a line of business within your business, which I am funding and I'm investing in, and sort of simpler. You know, I guess the analogy is like venture capital. Is I'm I'm I am funding these initiatives. Uh, and I know that probably nine out of 10 of them will be nothing. But if anything, I may get some ancillary learnings about what data is useful or not uh, or contextually. But the one out of 10 that comes in is truly valuable and it makes up for all uh, all the uh, all the uh, all the other efforts. But you have to approach it that way, because if you don't. Um, you know, you're just going to be left behind is essentially what's going to happen. Or you're going to be the guy that finds out that something has already happened. And then you're, you're running, you're either running to catch up or someone has figured out something and they have locked that market up and you can't come in anymore. So while, while we're talking about using the data, um, I also found it fascinating that, you know, there's also demand out there for these designers. It's not just developers, it's and data scientists. You, you also need a design element here to be able to present that data to leadership or to traders to give them the decision points uh, they need to to make make you know make the trade or whatever it might be, and and that is an art form. Uh, that is, I mean, it's obviously it's it's based on technical skills and 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 mechanics of of software, but the design and the visual element of it is absolutely an art form because you are talking about you're talking about such a interrelated. Uh, networked market where you know it's it's almost like you could you can push somewhere and 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 how it pops out in other places is so um, you know without a good understanding of the network you, you you have to understand those relationships so being able to take that data and present it have a delivery vehicle that presents it to the person at the right time so that they can make a decision and then second associated with that with people sort of kind of sometimes don't uh, think about is recording that and recording that in the context of, you know, product, location, time of day, you know, and then so that when you archive this information, you go back and you look at it, you can say, hey, why did this jump up that day? And then you have all the associated data that, you know, that, that, um, 
that was pertinent on that day say oh wow the ship was late or oh, you know this pipeline went down and that's why we did this as opposed to what we had planned to do earlier uh, it's that context and the design element is not just presenting the data but then being able to come back and be able to interrogate that data because it's the retrospective interrogation of the data that really brings a lot of your insight that you can test out in in the live market. So yeah, uh, incredibly important skill. It's quite clear, I guess, and, and there are ex- there are examples already, right? Renaissance Technologies and so forth who have have spent a decade or however long in the commodities markets building their algorithms, um, you know, and 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 knowledge to to successfully, we assume, um, make a lot of money and, and and trade in the commodity space. So, but the I guess the best example I can think of is Google, where A, that points to the amount of investment. This is this is a company entirely dedicated to the collection and analyzing of data. They have built a competitive edge with their algorithms that means that they are still and probably likely to continue to be the biggest search firm and streaks search engine and and streaks ahead of everyone else. And I guess the conceit is that, and this is why the the trading houses are putting so much money into this. And as our oil majors, as our whomever has a trading platform in commodities, if you can get this right, you might be able to make, well, you should be able to make better decisions more often, almost all the time, which would give you an unassailable competitive edge over your competitors. That's right. And, 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 you know, I'll come back to this point, like there's Google is a great, great example of that, or Uber is another phenomenal example of that. Uh, when you talk about just sort of intelligence that they gain just from the operation and the amount of investment they put into taking that data and making their algorithms smarter. Um, uh, there's a scale differential, right? Cause you know, Google is a search engine that quite honestly, probably two, three, four billion people use every day. Uh, the energy industry is a big industry, but it is a it's it's the marketplace is a little smaller. So the investment is really the technology investment is not that high. It is the people investment and the intellectual capital investment that is very very heavy in this. Um, and I, I'll tell you this: I mean, I have a revulsion when I hear people talk about something from the perspective of technology. Perfect example is not, and I'm not dispersing the technology itself because we're doing something in blockchain, right? When you put that first, we're doing something in blockchain, which is the technology. Uh, it tells me immediately you don't know what you're doing or you are trying to figure out what you're doing. The question should start with, this is the question we're answering, right? So Google was like, we want to be the fastest search firm. Um, uh, we want to dominate internet browser search engines. Uh, and the technology sort of falls behind it and, and, and gives it. It gives the raison d'etre for, for, for the investment because that's the goal. If blockchain is, if the technology, what is the problem that you're solving? Uh, and, 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 and what is it going to take to solve that problem? So that's, you know, and that's part of, it comes back to that whole notion of the iteration and not making it a, a project with milestones and stuff like that in, in the sense that you have budget associated with it and you, you hold people accountable to the budget, but don't make it about, you know, and typically where we see the wrong foot forward is it's, oh, it's about Databricks or, or AWS or Azure or, you know, Spark or Cognition or AI, you know, and that's just throwing out a bunch of terms without really understanding what it is that you're trying to, 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 to solve. Uh, but if 
if what you're trying to solve, you know, is really the competitive advantage that you're going after, everything else will line up. You'll figure that stuff out. And I think that's the hardest part for a lot of firms, firms to take into consideration is what am I trying to solve for here, right, at the end of the day? Uh, and what is the competitive edge associated with that? But it's, and I guess this is where it's not for everyone, right? Some organizations have a natural competitive advantage here, scale being one of them. You know, uh, it'd be hard for HC to go out and hire a bunch of data scientists to solve, a, a, you know, the many problems that we, we would like to have answered to because of scale, right? And there's also challenges around the richness of data that you can have, um, and there's also actually the, the 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 psychology aspect of this as well the the kind of the Kodak business you know, famous sort of Harvard Business Review. Can can you just walk us through why you know where you see the stumbling blocks here and the challenges? Yeah, I think I think the biggest one is psychological one. Uh, and when I say psychological, uh, or see how I define psychological is there there needs to be a willingness to to entertain the idea of of working differently. Uh, of operating differently, of using different tool sets in a in a different way. Now, what that means in in reality is there are going to be certain functions that will be largely automated, um, maybe not one hundred percent eliminated, but a lot of automation will come in and take over uh, that function. Doesn't mean that the insights going to come from that automation. Just means that a lot of the repetitive manual tasks are being taken. But the psychology is. When it is, and it's, it's funny how certain firms react to this, but what if the data tells you things that, you know, really challenges an orthodoxy inside, inside the, the, the firm, a religion, right? We believe this to be true. Why do you believe it to be true? Because we've always believed this to be true. It is a given sort of fact, uh, an example there. And, and I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but I, I kind of, what I, what I am saying is this is where it's likely to happen. Let's look at downstream, right? Um, uh, and let's look at technology and downstream. You know, the refinery LP planning model module, uh, planning software, which is some sophisticated linear planning software that's used to manage refinery, you know, production planning, refinery reoptimization, yield management, unit management, has been a set of technologies that's been used for what, 30, 40 years now? And the technology really hasn't changed, the underlying technology. And it's it's been used because back then I could sort of optimize a refinery based on grossed up, you know, sort of estimation of what demand is going to look like or what price is going to look like uh, and what my crude slate has looked like. And then when you have now the nodes sort of becoming so much more clearer, so I'm not looking at an average price, price for pad three. I am looking at the differentials between Kansas City and Oklahoma City and Dubuque, Iowa, and the, and the specific demand patterns there and the pipeline capacities and the availability, the ability to get product in there. If I'm going to bring that in, all of a sudden it goes, well, I can't really use that model. And what is the model now going to be? Is it going to be more of uh, a network optimization model that says, hey, this is what the edge, the nodes are saying they need. And now I'm going to rejig how I'm going to run the asset in order to specifically supply certain markets with the product where I know I have a, a, a price edge versus just pump uh, volume out and then figure out how I'm going to distribute that through an in incredibly constrained network. If that's the, the solution there, you're going to have people that are going to be very uncomfortable with that. 
and 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 that's going to be the challenge. And the challenge is always a, a challenge of. Uh, and I think someone said it really brilliantly recently. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was someone anonymously on Twitter said, "You know, the 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 challenge of change is is it should not be born on the people that are looking to 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 try something new." The, the challenge of, of change should be born on the people who are arguing that things should stay the same. They're the people that need to justify why things should stay, stay the same versus the people who are saying, hey, we want to do this uh, and, and we are going to put the orthodoxy, you know, we're, we're going to attack the altar here. If the data says that, um, you know, this particular orthodoxy is well past its use by date. Uh, and that's, that's a difficult thing to do. Well, and it's exposing as well, right? I mean, all of this is, and this is, you know, probably a broader theme of the podcast is digitization is, you know, is a, is rapidly iterating, right? And I think if you've, if you've built a career building up of certain viewpoints and knowledge around how a particular market operates, and then the data shows that that's changed or is, as never has been the case, that can be a challenge. And most of, most of us are, in leaders in our in our businesses because of how well we did an action in the past right you know um not necessarily you know how good we are at changing and doing something in the future and if, if the if the model the paradigm shifts in a particular industry that's really hard if the current leadership have all been have, have achieved their position through the old paradigm yeah so we've definitely got an idea of how powerful this is and how, or, you know, and how challenging it is for implementation I found it fascinating recently to hear that, you know, there's one hedge fund out there that, you know, we, we, we always hear kind of the, the problem with algorithms is they're, they're, they're right until they're wrong, you know, and, and you need a human there to turn them off. You know, there is a hedge fund out there that apparently, you know, the mantra is the model is always right. You know? It's the market that's wrong. Right? <laughs> well, well, okay. um, I think their point is that actually in the long term, they're so confident in the model that any deviation from what the model is, was expecting will probably course correct. And it's more challenging, you know, you're, it's more destructive to back out of the trade in the short term than it is to wear the risks on the down, you know, wear the risk as it goes through that cycle. And again, I think ultimately speaks probably the confidence in the models that they have. But let's let's look towards the future because this is a, you know, the, this is a rapidly changing space. We've already kind of talked perhaps, you know, I think we've got a future episode with a different guest on on what the, the future of a, a trading floor might look like. Can you talk about some of the current trends? Because one thing's for sure is there's lots more data coming, right? Um, you know, so so yeah. Can you what, what do you see as the sort of the next five years as it comes to data analytics in in the commodity space? Yeah, I, I think uh, I mean I think the the general hypothesis that I adhere to, unless you know, unless you know, you know, you've got to be honest again, unless the data tells me differently, is we are rapidly sort of evolving towards that that state of more and more automation, more and more data, less people required to handle and manage that data and make decisions, meaning that there are going to be certain aspects of of global commodity trading, especially or oil trading. Because oil trading or energy trading is rules-based, because there is a reversion to the mean, because at the end of the day, you have to tie back to a physical product that has to be delivered at a location. There are relationships that hold and need to hold. You know, the cost to carry relationship needs to hold because when these relationships go out of whack, there is financial incentive to come and correct them, right? If the contango is really, really steep, you know, everyone will buy today and 
look to sell tomorrow, and that action will bring Contango back to normal carry cost. The same is with location arbitrage or quality arbitrage. So that rule set holds the market from going, you know, uh, I'm not sure absolute shift in prices will happen, but the relationships between different products, different grades, different locations uh, will always hold because there's incentive. So if you, if you, if you, if you subscribe to that, that rule set still holds um, and can be, you know, once that rule set and those constraints can be automated, you are rapidly going down to further and further automation. You're rapidly going down to more and more sort of autonomous type activity going on. Uh, you know, it essentially comes back to when you look at equities as, as, as a, as a, uh, a roadmap, you know, you more and more become, you know, uh, speed becomes ultimately the, the, the deciding edge. You may have information advantage, but very quickly models get dispersed through the system. Uh, that edge goes away. The data edge over time gets eroded away because people leave firms and go join other firms and they take intellectual uh, property with them. It's a fact. Um, uh, and then it just boils down to speed. Uh, and I think that's, that's the way we, we're, we're heading uh, if you look at any other industry out there, uh, you know, the, 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 the exceptions to what I'm talking about are so in the minority, it's more on speed and convenience and, and availability and automation and, and, and less manual intervention. Um, I think what's really interesting, and I think for, especially with you, Paul, and, and, and your business of human capital is, you know, what are the requirements of the people? I, I think that's going to change as well and change massively. Um, required to run these type of, of operations versus, you know, what we thought was the skill set in the past. Yeah. And I, we're seeing that already. We have our own technology practice, which was probably inconceivable five years ago and seeing huge demand and huge growth and actually a lot of demand just for insight on what, you know, competitors are doing. Um, what I find fascinating about that comment is you're essentially saying, so data becomes more democratized. We're seeing that trend already. Your proprietary model is likely to be quickly replicated if it really works. If it really how, works, right? You know, yeah, that's how markets work. Um, you know, there's a there's a Darwinian element to this. Actually, then it's going to come down to the speed of decision making. So, and that's where these independent trading houses, or you know, have always had an edge, is in speed of decision making. And so, I guess that's where they can still drive this this uh, competitive advantage by leveraging the data, leveraging the analytics, and then being able to make those decisions, um, hopefully better decisions, uh, more often and more quickly um, around the data. Yeah, but I mean, look, the barriers to entry are low from a data perspective and from a technology perspective. It's a it's a peopleness and people peopleness. It's a it's a people and a vision issue. So. The way I see it is, yes, the independent traders, because they have that in their DNA, uh, will will always be in front or are in front. But there's there's nothing but uh, you know the willingness and 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 the the willingness to the vision and the willingness to to assign people to do it that doesn't stop anyone else from you know leveling the playing field or at least you know removing the distortion uh, in performance very quickly. Uh, that's the one thing I wouldn't rest on my laurels, you know, and you have, you have software companies out there that, you know, are, are producing this data. If it's satellite data, data, you know, orbital insider or, or Airbus and, you know, so there, and, and, and then associated with that, the analytics that come with it, 
Um, so th- that's going to be somewhat of a leveling effect. It's it's really at the end of the day, it boils down to like what we talked about. It's psychology. It's it's what do you want out of this, and 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 how much are you willing to invest in it? Um, I think one one point I'd like to, I'd make is you think about the internal incentive models, and you think about the in the profile of the people that are changing. I think one of the biggest you know things that folks should be looking for is that innate curiosity. Uh, as a skill, as a capability, uh, and then you tie that with that willingness to experiment and iterate and fund it, uh, and and a sort of an optimistic contrarian type of outlook. Uh, those are the people that will win the or, or the organizations that will win the war on talent. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I also think it's just fascinating if there's that data from the edge, like you talk about. Well, there's a lot of other industries, companies starting to participate in this space. Um, that are also accessing that edge data. Like we talked about it on the chemicals episode with Peter Starches, the, the, um, that's ripe for other um, shippers to start thinking about that space. And they have, probably have much more information. Amazon probably has much more information on pricing around certain commodities than the commodity trading houses do. Yes, just because they run a fleet on the edge, right? Both airplanes and trucks, right? Yeah. Oh, well, and and they know buying signals, right? You know, right. Uh, if you know how much plastic is being used in toys, I imagine that can give you a pretty good idea about, <laughs> you know, um, the, the commodities behind it. But anyway, it has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I urge uh, our listeners to go and listen to your podcast as well, um, Margin Call. You know, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate uh, the the invite and uh, definitely had a lot of fun with this conversation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offerings as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.